Welcome to the Anxious in Austin yeah, podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Stout. Dr. Thomas Smithyman. And I'm Dr. Jana Greeson. Yay, we have a Who's guest, our guest today. today. Yeah, excited yeah. to be here. Yeah. So Jana works with us here at the Anxiety Treatment Center of Austin. She's one of our colleagues. She's a postdoctoral fellow mm-hmm. specializing in anxiety disorders and OCD with an extra special emphasis on children and adolescents. That's right. Doing things that we know nothing about. Yeah. Anxious, anxious children anxious and children. anxious adolescents, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely, yeah. Yes, I get asked all the time, do you work with kids? I think because I'm a mom, people mm-hmm. ask me this, but I'm it's like, nope. <laughs> nope, I don't. But Jana does. But Jana does. Give I, I assume, I was thinking of it as being a different skill set. People will ask me oh, sometimes. Yes. They'll be like, oh, you know, my kid has this thing, and they're like, what should I do? I'm like, if they were 22, yes. I would do this. Yeah. I don't know, though, what in the world you would do with a seven-year-old. Well, yeah. because I think this is the thing that I get thrown with. is like in CBT, that C part, right, the cognition, you need to have a pretty actively working mm-hmm. prefrontal cortex, and mm-hmm. that doesn't finish developing until you're 25. So yeah. and what do you do when you're little? Right. Then I, mean, I think, too, also any of the B behavioral stuff, I feel like you yeah. need to know the C cognitive stuff in order to build mm-hmm. an appropriate... Oh, totally. Behavioral, you know. Mm-hmm. Like this is again. This is for me based on mm-hmm. on adults, right? Yeah. Okay. You know, surprisingly, I I used to feel the same way. Like it must be so different. And as I started going to trainings and getting supervision in my work with child and adolescents, um, children and adolescents, I've actually learned like so much of the things you do with adults translate. But the ways it looks are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, things become a bit more concrete. The, the cognitive work that you guys are bringing up, I find um, you spend a lot more time at the beginning on that because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't come quite as yeah. quickly or easily to children to think about their thoughts. But once you have some common language around it and get them talking and get to know them, I can start to like pick up on the thoughts and then help them uh-huh. identify them. Which is true though, because we talk about this all the time. A lot of adults don't. <laughs> you have to explain like what a thought is, right? Because yeah. a lot of adults don't recognize like, so, oh, my thinking can be something that I'm actually doing. You're trying to build me. metacognitive awareness, right? In the kids yeah. and, and adults, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think one one fun way that I do that with kids is to externalize the anxiety or the worry. Um, so for like the younger kids, giving it a name like Mr. Worry or the Troll or um, I have a client who has an aunt she doesn't like named Karen, so it's her, her anxiety is Karen. Oh, really? Oh, no. um, yeah. Poor um, Karen. <laughs> and then you can kind of think about it as this like character that has a voice, you know, and so what was the worry telling you when you went to school and, and got upset the other day? And that kind of makes it easier for them to talk about it. Do you do that with adults too? Yeah. You know, I think I have every once in a while named the anxiety. Have you with your well, clients? See, I, I do the, I mean, I think, I think you probably do too, right? I'm like, I always work on externalizing yeah. the, the anxiety. I don't get name though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't, I'd call it anxiety or OCD yeah. or whatever mm-hmm. what's the anxiety or the OCD telling you to do right you know yeah. what does it want you to do in this moment and what's it threatening you with yeah. but I can imagine like naming it makes it even more external, more external you know? yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and then the, 
The family members can also be calling it by its name, which takes the blame and the fault off of the child and onto the anxiety, which is really important. Yeah, because huh. yeah. Yeah, I get that often. I'll have clients who are adults um, say, like, yeah, I want to bring my partner in or, you know, sometimes a parent to yeah, explain. Can you help me explain to them what's going on and why this is happening? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, there is a lot of, like, shame as to why I'm doing this when I don't want to or they think I want to be living this way and I don't and but I can't describe it so yeah that makes a lot of sense about how do we all get on the same page right we're not making like the child the bad guy yep yeah wow that's done all right I think we could like be you know I, I think another thing that looks really different with children is um you often are like working with the whole system, yeah. right? So, mm-hmm. parents, family, teachers at times, um, any like significant person the child comes into interaction with can be really helpful to have on board. Um, so, so that looks pretty different. I it's really common for me to have joint sessions with my client in their parents or just parent sessions or I'll spend a good amount of time um, talking between sessions with parents on the phone or calling schools and talking about um, accommodations that may be needed and things like that. What are some common accommodations that they do at schools? Yeah, well, so one one that comes to mind, I um, have a client who struggled with school, school refusal, so quite a bit of anxiety about going to school. And, um, you know, the way we treat that, the behavioral piece of treating that is helping this person, this client get more and more practice spending longer and longer periods of time at school. Um, But schools sometimes, you know, they're focused on attendance and their numbers. And so their first, you know, they don't, uh, they need a little psychoeducation on what we're doing in therapy Uh that will eventually support the client in getting back to school full time. But that's not going to happen right away. What's realistic is the first exactly yeah, first steps. Yeah. So flexibility with schedule was a big one. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, this client in particular had a lot of perfectionism, and so she worried about um, doing things right at school or how she would um, be viewed by her teacher or others. So one accommodation we came up with was that her achievement wasn't um, public. Like they would do these things in their class where. You would know how people did on tests and things like that, but they took. I know. No pressure. Not helpful. (laughs) Not helpful. So making her achievement stuff private and um, so, which like every kid there should have that. I agree. Um, Yeah. So does the social piece of like right? Because we, as an adult, you can work from home more easily, or you can right have more choice and how much time you spend around other people but in school I mean depending mm-hmm. on school but most public schools it's a very social environment so mm-hmm. does that have a big in- impact on the kid I think a lot of times it does it sort of depends on on the kid um, one thing I often look for is um, is any kind of bullying going on or what are the social dynamics at school like because um, that can play a major role. And then also, what is, like, the culture at the school, um, like, expectations for the kids regarding their behavior, regarding academics, um, looking at, at those things to see, 
um, is the social side of things playing a major role in the anxiety? And, and if it is, going back to your question about what are some accommodations, um, there's a balance that I work with my clients on helping them have the tools to just manage the anxiety given those stressors. But then sometimes I'll talk with schools about having a coping plan that the client can use. So um, do they maybe need the ability to take a break every once in a while or um, talk with the school counselor if something comes up with peers, um, things like that. Like what's a concrete coping plan they could stick to? Mm -hmm. Got it. So what are some examples of like behavioral stuff you do in schools or with kids because I can imagine that that is very different too I'm just thinking like I guess I don't even know well yeah what I would do with adults behaviorally right like Mm -hmm. looks like adult things and so I imagine that like yeah working with kids is it Mm -hmm. more like games or yeah it's a great question um so first, so what you're referring to, right, is, is um, like that the, one of the main things we do in anxiety treatment is helping our clients face their fears. Um, and before I can even go there with kids, and I know this happens with adults too, but the rationale for why, why in the world we are like doing these oh, yeah. things that are hard yeah. is so, it takes a little longer and it's uh-huh. so like important for, for the kids. So to do that, I use like stories or metaphors or even like experiences. What's what's your favorite? Like, yeah. Like, what, what's your main like kind of story that I don't know? That's yeah. So, cool. so um, one thing I like to do is, uh, you know, I, I'm introducing the idea to them of like being able to just feel uncomfortable and and just be okay with that. Just recognize that that's going to happen. Um, so I have this. Sometimes I do peanut butter. Sometimes I do jelly. But I'll get like a, a jar of jelly. And I'll scoop out a glob and um, and put it all over their hands and all over my hands. I do it with them. And then we, like, rub it around and we just, like, talk about what it feels like, that, like, we could go wash our hands right now, but we're not. Got it. Um, and, like, that it's icky and gross. But uh-huh. then we'll just kind of sit there and keep talking. And, like, five minutes later, I'm like, huh, does it feel as bad to you as it did right at first? And, you know, usually it doesn't. Uh, every once in a while, a yeah, habituation. Every once in a while, it backfires, and I have a kid that like loves the feeling of peanut butter. <laughs> like, this is not working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like so. Then later in treatment, I can refer back and be like, "You remember when we had the jelly all over our hands, and it was like icky, and we didn't like it, but we we sat, sat with it." And um, so they can use like images and experiences like that. Mm-hmm. Another thing I'll do is say, like, um, if you had a friend that was really afraid of dogs, like, what would you suggest your friend do to get over that fear? And a lot of times they can say things like, well, first, you know, I'd recommend they spend some time with dogs. And I'm like, would you get, like, a huge scary dog right at first? (laughs) Or would you, like, maybe get a small calm dog? And, you know, they're able to realize you can do this, like, stepwise um, exposure. Um, things like that. Yeah. So, but then, so then once we're into the exposure, it is kind of fun. It does, it can involve more like playful exposures. Mm. So I have, um, a, a client who struggles with OCD around, it's called scrupulosity. So, um, kind of worries about sinning or doing right things versus wrong things. 
Um, and particularly, she has trouble with the idea of holding up her middle finger um, and cussing. And so one of the things um, we've done is played, we play Uno, but before we play, we, we kind of come up with a system where each time one of us sets down a green card, we say the S word. Um, and each time we set down a red card, we hold up our middle finger. And, and of course, like parents are on board with this and, and totally understand the rationale. And so it's kind of fun. We're playing Uno, but she's also getting practice saying bad words. Yeah. Um, That's great. Yeah, okay. And, and meanwhile, and she has that understanding of, I'm doing this because this is going to help me right. get over this fear of doing these things. Right. In, in public or socially. Exactly. The more practice I get doing the things that I'm afraid of, the easier it'll become. But I could see how games would be helpful, whereas, like, adults, since they get more of the logic of it, they're like, I don't want to do this exposure, but I'm willing to do Mm -hmm. it because I know this is going to be helpful. Whereas if it's, like, got some playful aspect to it with a kid, they'd be more willing to do it because it's less on... Yeah. I can understand that long-term this is going to be beneficial for me. It's not like I'm going to tolerate pain for the game. It makes it a little more fun, right? Mm -hmm. It gives it a little more positive reinforcement during it. Mm -hmm. It makes you think of... um, Increases willingness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Reed Wilson's uh, stuff. Have you seen this? Yeah. He's like anxiety games. Yeah. Yeah, so... um, do you utilize that at all? Yeah, a good question. And actually, he writes one of my favorite books to recommend to parents, which is called Anxious Parents, Anxious Kids. Oh, okay. Um, by Reed Wilson. He's he's wonderful. Like he's if, so if anybody's good. interested, he has he has a few. Like the videos. On, yeah, he, online he has too. Oh, really? Yeah. Anxiety Coach or something like that. He, yeah, Anxiety yeah. Coach maybe is his website. Something like that. But like he's that. he's a like he train he trains people as well. Like he does his trainings. I own a whole bunch of them. They're great. Yeah. Um, which I think it works because he has a like a theatre background or something, so it's very you know it's really it's, engaging, it's really engaging and fun, and like he can like his his whole idea of like bringing games into it. He has some books. Anybody's listening, he has some like books that are. Well, wonderful. I always think with adults, I always go to values because I'm trying to think of what's motivation, like how we work on motivation for yeah, doing mm-hmm. exposure's hard, like yeah. leaning into that's like the opposite of what your brain was built to do it yeah. was <laughs> made to yeah, avoid you're fighting the time right yeah, yeah. and so I'm, I always think of like okay let's go at this from like values can you tolerate this discomfort in the service of your values you know I want to have more of this in my life and less of OCD or anxiety dictating what my life looks like mm-hmm. but yeah I could say all like games and fun it's another yeah. way to increase motivation like okay I'm willing to do this not this thing I don't really want to do because this is going to be kind of fun right? to do this. And I will say it can be really helpful to incorporate rewards. Um, and that's where mm. parents, the whole family gets involved. Um, like tying exposure, practice, and things that the, the child's doing to be brave and to face their anxiety with some incentives. And the rewards, you know, we I think when we hear reward, we think of like material things like mm-hmm. toys and food and stickers. But I always emphasize the non-material rewards like praise and attention from parents goes mm-hmm. a long way, yeah. like time to play a game together or go, the child gets to pick where they go to dinner one night. Um, things like that and tying it to what the child's doing can also really help when motivation and, and willingness is sort of a challenge. Sure. Yeah, because that's what I was trying to get at with the like cognitive part. If you don't, if you 
right? Like your brain isn't built to see the long-term value of this because your brain isn't done developing. No fault of your own. How do you work towards this model that's working on a long-term goal? Right. Same like tolerate short-term discomfort. So it's more reinforcement in the Mm -hmm. short-term. Right. And sometimes that reinforcement is much more important right at the beginning because once they do start to improve and face their fears, Uh, they get that natural reinforcement of, oh, this is like empowering and like I feel good and confident and all those good things. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that so many times like that. The pride. Yeah, the, the pride, pride that you response. get of facing fear versus, mm-hmm. like, if you avoid fear, the, like, shame that, like, mm-hmm. I let it beat me again. So, yeah, yeah I totally see that. Yeah. I was curious because I think, for me, the biggest deterrent I have in working with kids is, like, that the kid is your client, mm-hmm. but so are the parents, yeah. right? And there's there can be some push-pull there. Different yeah, needs my, yeah, or different, different uh, stakeholders. Demands. So... Mm-hmm. Is it helpful for parents to be getting their own therapy at the same time, or what? How yeah. do you negotiate those waters? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think it it sort of depends on on the case. You know, I think in a case where the parents have their own anxiety, that um, which is really common, right? Because anxiety often runs in families. Um, if the parent has anxiety and isn't managing it, it can model anxious responses to the child, which just kind of perpetuates the, the issue. And so um, that can be a good time for the parent to get support. And I think um, in cases where I bring that, it's a tricky thing to bring up, but I often frame it as like, you know, um, you're seeking out help for your child, which is amazing. You're equipping them with all these tools. I think alongside that, alongside that, you could set a really nice model and get your own support because it can be really stressful to have an anxious child. Um, so getting some support around that for yourself. Um, but, but the other piece that sometimes becomes a recommendation is like family therapy. You know, if there are some um, struggles within the family dynamics that are kind of beyond the scope of, of me working with the client on their anxiety, um, I will sometimes recommend family therapy as a, a, um, a nice thing to add to the, the individual work mm. the client's doing. And it, is that because you're, like, it's getting in the way of the treatment you're doing, or do you see it as, I'm curious to know, do you mm-hmm. see that as being a, a cause of, or like part of the multiple causes of the, the child's anxiety? Yeah, I, I think it can be both. Yeah. Um, and sometimes um, I think that a family, um, you know, develops longstanding patterns over time that, um, again, like perpetuate the anxiety, but it's hard for them. They're so used to doing these things that it's invisible, it's right? It's yeah. invisible. It, it, yeah. It's like how culture's invisible until you leave it. Yeah. yeah. I also think, too, just having friends with OCD and such and even like when my kids have felt anxious or whatever like it's hard to not give reassurance oh my gosh we as human beings right like we see somebody we care about suffering yeah we go to that short term I want to like make this go away I want to fix this for you and help you so anyone listening this comes up a a whole bunch because like one of the very very natural responses to anxiety is trying to relieve the person's anxiety through reassuring them yeah but 
that's a way of not facing fears. Yeah, and so over the long term, yeah, yeah, it, it actually increases the, the anxiety. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to do. We're supposed to not give reassurance right. to someone who's actively anxious. Asking you for reassurance yeah. sometimes, point yeah. blank. That seems like one of the hardest things to ask parents to do, i got to imagine. Yes, and you know, it's hard too because there's a certain amount of reassurance that any parent gives to their child. You know, things like helping their child understand that they're going to be taken care of and the world is a generally safe place and mm. but it's it's really helping them get a gauge for is my child needing a lot of sure. reassurance and when i give it is it not is it you know the fact there are they mm. demanding more and more yeah. over time how long does it last for that yeah kind of thing? it doesn't really. go away they're not reassured they keep needing more exactly yeah and I never blame parents. I, I think that, like you said, Marianne, the things that often they do are just natural responses for wanting to take care of their child. And so sometimes they just need some knowledge and some tools and just an understanding that those things, when it comes to anxiety, can really just contribute to more anxiety. It's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Personally. Yes, because yeah. I feel like this is what I tell people as a psychologist, and then when I'm in my personal life and somebody's really, you know, struggling or suffering, I'm like, oh shoot! Yeah. <laughs> it's like when the I, rubber hits the road. When <laughs> I'm anxious, I oh, often yes. want reassurance, sure. and I have to catch myself saying, like, what would I tell my client to mm-hmm. do right now? Yeah. Well, yeah, when you were saying about like family therapy, and sometimes it can be perpetuated, and how it's handled at home, I will tell you, I think in being a, you know practicing psychologist I think that the number one thing I always say to people is like I can't be a hypocrite I have to, if I'm going to tell people that they have to do this mm-hmm. I need to do it myself yeah. and it's hard like and that's when you see like this is not easy stuff to do it's, no. it's asking a lot of people to be going against their natural way of being yeah mm-hmm. absolutely so it's yeah a learning process for everybody yeah yeah, it's I, tough. I think an, another thing parents can sometimes do in addition to reassurance um, giving is how, like contributing to avoidance behaviors, you know, mm, so okay. their kid is really anxious about doing something and would, you know, the natural response of, well, I just don't want to do it. Um, parents who don't understand that that, that doesn't help will sometimes, um, you know, allow that or, or rightfully so just give in. Um, do you, sorry, it's like kind of, but do you use yourself as an example for think for kids? Like, are they wanting to know, is this something you ever struggle with? Or is this something, mm-hmm. do you know where I'm coming from? Because I get that from adults a lot, but I could see yeah. that be even more common in kids. Yeah, I, I often, bef- even before getting asked, I'll often bring it up. Because I, yeah. I often find that, like, um, it's a good rapport builder with the kids I see. Um, I struggled with anxiety as a kid, and it's part of why I enjoy working with kids. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. That was that was honest. That was my intention was to how, how to start, but somehow we launched right into <laughs> the, the middle of this thing. So, anyways, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, gosh, I had a number of little things, but one, I had a huge phobia of anything in costume. So like we would go to UT games, you know, University of Texas. Common in kids. Yeah, and I would be terrified anytime the mascot would come by, and just would like cower behind my mom's legs. Um, And then when I got older, I played soccer, and um, I developed performance anxiety around playing soccer. I had this coach who was 
a big yeller. And he, if we messed up, that was his style. He would just yell. And I, this is like hard to say, but I um, became so nervous before every game. Um, I was worried I was going to mess up that I would throw up before each soccer game. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So... I, I wish I'd had some tools back then, and um, I often share things like that with my clients, and um, I think it helps them feel like, you know, it's, it's yeah. normalizing. Well, yeah. I, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know. I remember as a kid, I thought about this just the other day, there was a period of like maybe like six months when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or something, mm-hmm. where um, I had this thought that I couldn't keep my eyes closed. So I'd, like, go to sleep, and I'd, like, lie down and, like, close my eyes. And I'd be like, Aww. I'm not going to keep my eyes closed. And they would, like, I couldn't Aww. help them. They would just keep opening. Oh, no. And so, like, I wouldn't, like, be able to sleep enough because every time I'd be starting to fall asleep, my eyes would pop open again. <laughs> because you'd put your attention on it. Yeah, and then, mm-hmm. and of course, like, not knowing any of this, like, how to deal with anything, I would just try to fight harder to keep mm-hmm. my eyes closed. And, of yeah. course, the mm-hmm. subconscious suggestion would keep... Right, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it was like maybe six months worth of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think those all these kinds of things are super common in kids. I remember having yeah. to like be symmetrical with things when I was like really little. Mm. It's like a very early memory of like, mm-hmm. oh, I picked that up with this hand. I need to pick it up with this hand now. And mm-hmm. but I and I I asked you because this is me as a parent. I find myself whenever my older daughter is anxious about things yeah. that she wants to hear times in which I've faced oh, it, yeah. you know, like yeah. what, what would you, what have you done or have you ever felt this way or mm-hmm. what do you do in these kind of situations? Yeah, which is de-shaming, right? Yeah. And also shows you that, oh, you can get through this. Yes. I got through this. You right. Can get through this. It's a great, yeah, opportunity for you to model um, and help her like talk through the situation, yeah. problem solve. Right. Yeah. Cause like kids, don't talk about their thoughts a lot mm-hmm. you know it, it is like we said even adults aren't always aware of like labeling thoughts as thoughts right. and so to hear what somebody else's thinking process is I think is helpful like oh yeah me too yeah when that's not something that's really commonly discussed right and I think too like kids put adults on this mm-hmm. obviously this pedestal mm-hmm. I remember my daughter telling me when she's like have you ever cried, Mom? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I've never seen you cry. I'm like, well, clearly I need to be like crying more in front of her. I'm like, I'm like just because I don't cry now when I like stub my toe or something like you, you know, uh-huh. adults cry in like different situations. Right. But yeah, I was like, oh shoot, <laughs> like I need to be modeling more of these things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I was curious, like, what yeah. do they? I don't know, like, how you would handle specific situations and such yeah I think you also are kind of touching on another thing I often hear from parents which is like how do I know if the anxieties my my child is showing are normal versus like need help um and that's a tricky question because fears are like a normal part of being human Mm -hmm. and we know from the research that there are certain fears that are developmentally Appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what are those? So like um, infants, like three to to nine months or or six to nine months, start to show separation anxiety um, and fear of strangers. That's really normal as mm-hmm. as they get older. Like between four to six years old, you start to see fears of like animals or the dark or 
supernatural things like ghosts. It's common that kids will start to think about those things and monsters. Fear. We monsters. Get a lot of monster talk. Yeah, mm-hmm. and kids are like straight. This is like my non-research <laughs> part at all. This is purely from what I've experienced in my own children, but and their friends is like kids kind of love being scared. Mm. Like they want to play chase, but they want it to be a safe environment, right? Like they want mm. me to or my husband to chase them or friends to ch- right, like and be this, like tickled or hide. This is mock aggression, right? So this is mm. research from a totally different realm, but it sounds like mock aggression, like the same way that animals do mock aggression whether it's like play, play chasings fighting. or play uh, yeah. fightings and like a lot of like childhood stuff and that turns into like a lot of flirtation later in life Interesting. is also mock aggression interesting yeah, yeah it's just mm. like because I've just noticed that like with a I don't have children but I have a, a dog who is a child substitute <laughs> he loves being Chased, and he loves being in trouble, but he's not really in trouble. <laughs> right. Gets it and squeaks it, you know. But it's that, that same. Yeah. It, it's, it's just funny hearing you say, "Oh, my actual children." Yeah, no, they love the same way as your dog. They love yeah. scared in a s- controlled environment, right? Uh-huh. Like where they yeah. can predict what the outcome is. You know, it's from somebody who they uh-huh. actually trust. Right. Like, and you know, but yeah, hide and seek and chase and monsters and. Mm-hmm. You know, lots okay, of which, that. Which actually makes me think of something that uh, I was considering bringing up, but I don't know if it's too far out of sure. out of our stuff. Um, uh, Disney movies. Mm. So, mm-hmm. as, as you know, and people who are listening probably don't know, very into Disney World and all the Disney movies. Um, but I think about them as being movies about childhood anxiety. Mm. Well, I think, right, is aren't most fairy tales and such historically that they are pretty yes. Disney lightened yeah. them up and has, has continued Hardly. to lighten them up they were I mean, really dark little, right the parents were always dying <laughs> I, I just watched Snow White things. again recently and the she's, she's the princess and the evil queen is the that's her mother yeah it's killing her because of like it just seems like there's right. a, each of those movies to me that when I look at it as a psychologist it looks like Childhood anxieties yeah. and losses and fit and well, yeah. even like Hansel and Gretel, like my, and I thought like, oh, these scary, these stories are really scary for kids. Are they? I, as a kid, I love these, but is this something I should be telling my kids? But they love it, and you're like, and the fact that they love like, to me, it feels like they're supposed to be going through this yeah. arc. Yeah, you know, like I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I've just been yeah, thinking more about it lately. I think that's a great point, and like. It also, I think, acknowledges that they deal with difficult sure. feelings. And so watching a story play out where you see how those feelings are dealt with can mm-hmm. be really helpful or just, like, interesting yeah. to them. Yeah. They see. And it is, like, in a story, right? It's not reality. So I can, like, experience this for a moment and then leave it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that and, and they get to come, th- I mean, really work, work through it all the way to this nice conclusion but I think right. yeah, these fairy tales they mm-hmm. imagine this is part of their role yeah is to have you face anxiety and then work through it to the end it makes me want to go back and watch some of the classics again oh my gosh the classics other than like Cinderella are yeah. super scary yeah. like really dark even ones like when I mean we weren't like small but um uh what it like 
the um, air, the Little Mermaid, right? Like, oh, yeah. that's pretty the scary. The Ursula. Yeah, like, she's creepy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But I've yeah. had clients say they can't watch certain scenes of The Little Mermaid. Yeah. Because yeah. it's kind of frightening. Yes, yeah. it is. Um, in Aladdin, like, I think of, like, when I was kids. But especially, like, the, yeah, earlier ones, like, Sleeping Beauty is oh, super yeah. scary. Like, oh, Maleficent yeah. is, like, Maleficent the scariest is character. Yeah. <laughs> pretty terrifying, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dragon, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, and then I, I feel like more, it's more um, kind of a recent thing that movies are like explicitly dealing with emotions, yeah. like yeah. like Inside, Inside Out, Out is a good example, yeah. yeah, and yeah, some we, I, I want to see like Coco and oh, Coco's great, yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but yeah, I think Inside Out does give a lot of how we're talking about like externalizing thoughts, yeah. like and yeah, even it's externalizing like emotion, yeah, that mm-hmm. I can. Um, work on, hey, this is what I'm feeling right now, or identify this is what I'm feeling right now. Right. There's a big um, social emotional learning component in AISD schools now mm-hmm. um, because I think, yeah, like academics is a big piece, but there's the other <laughs> reason why you're in school is to learn how to be like a citizen, right. <laughs> learn how to get along with other people. Yeah. And a, a huge part of that is if you don't understand your thoughts and feelings, it can be hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important stuff. I've heard mixed kind of reviews on programs that are done really well sure. and some that aren't. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. I'm sure a lot of it's up to who's implementing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, very cool. Well, do yeah. you know, since you also do work with adults, do you notice mm-hmm. any major differences in working with kids versus mm-hmm. adults? Or? That's a good question. I think the the main thing, some of these we've talked a little bit about, um, the main things are things go a little slower, especially at first, like just helping the child really um, get in touch with their thoughts and this idea that their thoughts, they can change their thoughts, um, and the the rationale behind exposure, like why we would be facing fears. So a little bit slower at first. Um, having the whole system involved, parents, family, teachers, um, and then like the the nature of what we do in session being a bit more like um, playful or concrete or experiential. Um, like those are probably the main things I would say that feel different. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sure if I uh, gathered the answer to this, but I know one of the questions was. Um, how to know when it's time to seek treatment oh, yeah. versus just being anxious. Yeah. yeah, so when those normal fears kind of become anxiety, maybe an anxiety disorder, yeah. I think things to look for, kind of the go-to thing I say to parents is like, are you noticing that the fear or anxiety is getting in the way of your kid, you know, and getting in the way of their life in some yeah, major way? Mm-hmm. Is it keeping them from doing things they usually enjoy, keeping them from making friends, is school suffering, Mm -hmm. things like that. Um, But other things I think parents can look for is, does the anxiety not pass? You know, with those normal fears we were talking about, usually the the child will eventually move through them, usually through their own exposure work um, and just reinforcement from peers for doing things that they might be afraid of um but does the anxiety just stick around and get worse even you know um and then a last thing is like 
um, is it over? Is the anxiety about something that's pretty innocuous? Um, and, and so that oh. may be something like related to obsessive compulsive disorder, sure. for example. Um, is the child afraid of something that um, really is not something to be afraid of, um, like um, getting dirt on their hands, um, things like that? So those are some of the guidelines I use. Is it like totally out of proportion? Does it feel really different than their peers? Some of those questions mm-hmm. um, are what I use. Is there an age of, like, right, since you do kids mm-hmm. and adolescents, what's the youngest you do? Typically eight or nine is the youngest. Okay. Yeah, I've seen a little bit younger than that. Mm-hmm. Is there an age that you find the most fun? Ooh. I think all the ages have different things that are fun about them. Um, it's fun with teenagers to, like... Teenagers are just like small adults. Yeah, so they're starting really, to they're trying to do some of that. Yeah, the cognitive work on their own. Yeah, um, so the, I enjoy I enjoy teenagers. Um, the games and stuff I get to play with the younger clients are fun, um, and every client's so different that it's just it just really varies. Yeah, but I used to teach fourth grade and fifth grade, which were like nine to ten year olds so that age is a really fun age to teach um they're like old enough that they are developing some self-awareness and at the same time like you're still cool in their eyes you know (laughs) and so that's a fun they haven't realized that you're not cool yeah Yeah. exactly that's a fun group Uh yeah middle schoolers that's hard Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah budding hormones and yeah Mm mm-hmm Adults are not cool anymore, and yeah, oh yeah. Well, awesome. Yeah. Is there anything that we? Yeah. Any any last things that you want? Yeah. Tell us this is important because I'm guessing probably there's going to be some parents who listen to this. Less eight year olds are probably getting this podcast and downloading it. Um, I don't know. I guess I guess I would say. Um, that the good news is that the anxiety disorders in children and adolescents are really treatable. Like, I think there's there was recently a, a large study, the National Institute of Mental Health, um, compared three different groups, one that got cognitive behavioral. So this is children or adolescents mm-hmm. with an anxiety disorder. Um, one group that got cognitive behavioral therapy alone, one that got a medication, so it was an SSRI, um, sertraline was the medication, mm-hmm. and one that got a combination, uh, a group that got a combination of both um, CBT and medication. And that third group that got the combination, 80% of the kids um, got better and no longer had an anxiety disorder. Mm. And then in the group that got CBT alone, 60% got better. Those are really good numbers. Are, this is what we always have, like, if this is in the medical community, they'd be like... We're gonna be billionaires. Sorry, this is one other thing I was thinking of too. As you're saying this, if you have an anxiety disorder as a child, are you destined to have an anxiety disorder as an adult, mm. or is it that like if it can be treated in kids? Yeah, and does it go away? Yeah, own? Like, right. So it, you know. Yeah, I think it's a really that's a good question, and um, oftentimes if you can get in early when the the child is young and start to give them tools, then you can keep the problem from progressing. Um, or if their anxiety resurfaces later in life, they know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's some self-efficacy because I've exactly. succeeded before, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is very true. I see plenty of clients who are like, I 
had this treated when I was younger and it was really helpful and it's kind of reared yeah. its head again and so I'd mm-hmm. like to get some treatment that I know will work and it usually goes pretty quick. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for coming all the way in yeah. to do this. Coming. <laughs> Getting on an airplane flying all the way here. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for having me. It was fun. Um, well, thank you again for yeah. coming and listening to our podcast, Anxious yeah. in Austin. We started a crowdfunding place yes. because we know lots about how to do these things. Yes. Um, if you go to anxiousinaustin.podbean.com, I believe, mm-hmm. um, you can check out our crowdfunding page and help keep this going, keep this ad free. Yeah. We appreciate and, your support. And you can find us. We also... I believe there's reviews or something you can do on um, iTunes. Give us reviews or <laughs> tell people or whatever it is that people do to... Uh, We're so savvy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure what's involved, but you guys probably know better than we do. You should so. send a telegram. Please do those things. Please telegram the people yeah. at iTunes if you like the yeah. show. Um, well, thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, send us your thoughts. Reach out to us. We'll talk to you soon. Sporadically. Okay. Okay.